Good morning and welcome to Riverside Covenant Church. On this beautiful day, let us give praise and thanks for air conditioning. Uh, a few orders of business before we start. One is that two weeks ago when we were acknowledging graduates, there was an eighth grade graduate sitting in the back sound booth who I couldn't hear or see and I said that a sixth grade person was graduating from eighth grade when they actually were not and Yalees is graduating from eighth grade. Correct, Yalees. Stand up and just let everybody look at your glorious face. We'll acknowledge you. This is her favorite thing. Sorry, but I needed to write that wrong that I had done. Uh, next thing, um, the M Miller McClurg trio, which is what I'm going to call them for lack of a better word. Sam in the back, the Miller boys in the front. Oh my. Um, a lot of talent. A lot of talent. As the mother of three musician boys, uh, there's something quite glorious and wonderful about watching that. Uh, I wish that we could see your faces, because I know there's a lot of expressions going on in there, but it was good even just watching your toe move in, because I get that. It's wonderful. Thank you for great music. And then the last order of business is that this is Communion Sunday. Uh, if you were here a month ago when we had communion, it was what I called the loudest communion we've ever had because we use these little pre-packed pod things here. So I'm going to give a little demonstration beforehand so that when we get to communion, people are not going to be fiddling and getting irritated and everything else. So it's all pre-packed, and this little tab right here is actually a double tab. And if you watch me not be able to do it, you grab the top tab, which is clear, and when you pull that off then the wafer is exposed, and then you open the rest of the tab, and it, um, the juice is there. But they're plastic, and they're like this, and this is what we had a lot of, we had about five minutes of this while people were figuring out. So I thought we would talk about this beforehand so that when we do partake of communion this morning, we've done all of our, um, it feels like a mechanical, it's like a test that we have to figure out how to do. So now we all know and we're going to do great at it. I am confident. This morning we're going to look at a story that could be very well known to some people depending on the context in which you've seen it. Uh, in 1956, which was just a few years before I was born, Hollywood released a movie that I would say was epic, epic, of epic proportions as well, which told the story of Moses, called The Ten Commandments, starring a blue-eyed Charlton Heston as Moses. But it's an amazing, amazing film that Cecil B. DeMille did, and it is um, still today, people watch it regularly. Um, about 40 years later, DreamWorks did a version of it, The Prince of Egypt, which actually was based on the movie, The Ten Commandments. So there was like two steps removed from the story. Uh, and both of them, I would say, took some liberties with the storyline, which usually happens with a movie, maybe because they believe that humanity can write a better story than divinity. But whatever the reason may be, we're going to look at that actual story itself this morning. It's in Exodus. It runs from chapter 5 to chapter 12. So we're not going to read the whole thing out loud, but I would very much encourage you to do that this week when you are home. So let me set the stage and get us brought up. At the end of Genesis, the first book in our scriptures today, all of Israel, which means all of Jacob's descendants, his 12 sons, they're living in Egypt, which is where their younger brother, Joseph, had been a high-ranking official. Also turned into a, a theater production that sway, strays a little bit from the storyline, but is well worth watching. 
Uh, and that story is well worth reading. Genesis 37 through 50, through the end of Genesis, is the story of Joseph. Well, then we get to Exodus, the second book in the Old Testament. And this is what we read at the beginning of Exodus, actually starting in verse 6. In time, Joseph and all of his brothers died, the sons of Jacob, ending that entire generation. But their descendants, the Israelites, had many children and grandchildren. In fact, they multiplied so greatly that they became extremely powerful and they filled the land. Now, if you have read Genesis or heard the stories of Genesis and you were to read this, you would go, that is a theme that is very familiar. There are echoes of Genesis in there. In the beginning of Genesis in creation, God tells humanity to multiply and fill the earth, govern it and care for it. Uh, to Noah, he says, refill, remultiply the earth. To Abraham in Genesis 22, he says, I will bless you. I will multiply your descendants beyond number like the stars in the sky and like the sand on the seashore. And then he says the same thing to Abraham's son, Isaac, in Genesis 26. And then he says the same thing to Isaac's son, Jacob, in Genesis 35. This is a theme throughout Genesis. And then you get to Exodus, and it starts with, they had multiplied greatly and filled the land. And you could go, this is where the story is going to get really good, because everything that God had promised is starting to happen here. And then you get to verse 8. And like so many things in life, it takes an unexpected turn. But eventually, it says, a new king came to power in Egypt, who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done, which essentially he had saved the Egyptian people. So this new king said to his people, well, look, the people of Israel now outnumber us, and they're stronger than we are. We must make a plan to keep them from growing even more, because if we don't, and if war breaks out, well, they'll join our enemies and fight against us, and then they'll escape from our country. So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. They forced them to build cities as supply centers for the king. But the more that the Egyptians oppressed them, meaning they kept oppressing them more and more, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread, and then the more alarmed the Egyptians became. So the Egyptians worked the people of Israel without mercy. They made their lives bitter, forcing them to mix mortar and make bricks and do all the work in the fields. They were ruthless in their demands. What felt like it was going to be the good next step in the story ends up being anything but that. And on top of all of that, because there's so many Israelites, Pharaoh orders the Hebrew midwives to kill every newborn Hebrew male. And the midwives, because they are awesome, completely awesome, don't do it. And so Pharaoh says to all of his people instead, well, they're not going to kill all the babies, so you, all of my people, find all the baby Hebrew boys and throw them in the Nile River. Pharaoh is cruel. He is despotic, he is wicked, he enslaves, he oppresses, he murders in epic proportions. And God will not 
tolerate. He will not tolerate it. So enter Moses, who probably didn't have blue eyes like Charlton Heston. He was a Hebrew, and at some point he'd been a Hebrew baby boy, but he'd escaped death after birth by, kind of like Joseph, being adopted into Pharaoh's family, an Egyptian family. Great story. Read it this week. It's in Exodus 2. And God chooses Moses to lead the Israelites, his people, to freedom, which Moses is not excited about. That story is in Exodus 3 and 4. Our story begins in chapter 5. And we'll bounce around a little bit. I'll try and tell you where I am all the time. Moses is finally in front of Pharaoh, and he is going to deliver the message that Yahweh gave to him. So... Moses and his brother Aaron say to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival in my honor in the wilderness. Uh, In this story, it's a little further in, but it happens nearby. This is the first time that the word redeem is used in the Bible, in the story of freedom from the Egyptians. And what the Lord says to the people of Israel is, I am Yahweh. I will free you from your oppression, and I will rescue you from your slavery in Egypt. I will redeem you with a powerful arm and great acts of judgment. Redeem really just means to buy someone out of slavery. It also means to bring them out of slavery in this story. In this story, God both bought them out of slavery and brought them out of slavery. And in fact, up to this point, God had generally been referred to as, I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. After this story, I am Yahweh who brought you out of Egypt. His amazing mighty acts becomes a major part of how we understand him and his identity. Anyway, Moses delivers God's message I am Yahweh, let my people go worship me in the wilderness. And this is Pharaoh's answer. This is in 5.2. Is that so? Retorted Pharaoh. If you ever have someone retorting, you know that it's not going to go well. And who is this Lord, this Yahweh? Why should I listen to him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord. I don't know Yahweh, and I will not let Israel. Israel go. And I would say at that very moment, God has every right to simply wipe Egypt off the map. Both for what Pharaoh has done and for how he responds to God's voice. But he does not. He gives them multiple chances to do the right thing before he shows his awesome power. There is... um, sort of uh, what I would call a prelude or a pre-plague. We're going to look at the plagues that afflicted Egypt today. And the pre-plagues are when Moses throws down his staff, which then turns into a serpent. Though interestingly enough, the word that's translated serpent there, most often in scripture is translated as sea monster or monster or dragon. So I would like to go with the dragon part. Some people... Some people think it was probably a crocodile, which is sort of a sea monster and which they would have known about in Egypt. But throw down the staff, it turns into a dragon, which eats the other dragon. This would be such a great movie. Oh, never mind, someone's already done that. So they do that sign because Pharaoh had said, I don't know who this Lord is. Why should I do what he says? 
And Moses says, I'll show you how powerful he is. And this is what happens. Pharaoh's heart is stubborn and he's going to refuse, says the Lord. So I will show him that I am the Lord. And he gives him fair warning about what's going to happen. This is the thing that I want us to watch for as we, we're going to blitz through these plagues really quickly. God always provides Pharaoh with an undeserved opportunity to do the right thing, even though he'd already refused to do the right thing. God always gives Pharaoh an undeserved warning. This is what's going to happen if you don't do the thing that I've told you to do. And when Pharaoh cries out for mercy, Pharaoh, the enemy, the wicked, cruel oppressor, cries out for mercy, God always gives undeserved mercy. I think this is important to keep in mind as we go through it. Plague one, the Nile turns to blood. There's a lot of people, actually ecologists and scientists who've written articles about why it turned to blood or that color, but it turned to blood. The Egyptians had no fresh water to drink. Nobody was hurt. Uh, the fish, the fish were probably hurt. But no people were hurt in this act of God's. Pharaoh saw what happened, and it says, his heart remained hard. He refused to listen to Moses, and it means to the Lord, to God. And he returned to his palace and put the whole thing out of his mind. He doesn't seem to care much for his people as well. Plague number two, frogs. And this is where you're going to start seeing the pattern of undeserved opportunity, warning, and mercy. Let my people go, Yahweh says. You have an opportunity to do the right thing. If you won't let them go, here's the warning about what's going to happen. I'm going to send frogs. Of course, Pharaoh doesn't let them go. And there's frogs everywhere, even in the palace and on the beds. So this time, Pharaoh can't just mark march back to his palace and forget about the whole thing because his palace is filled with frogs. So he asks, he begs for mercy. And God even lets him choose the time of day that he will receive the mercy of the frogs disappearing. That is how merciful God is. They disappear, and it says, but Pharaoh remained stubborn and refused to listen. Number three, gnats. No warning, they're everywhere. At this point, even Pharaoh's magicians, which is the, their sort of their prophets of their Egyptian gods, say, this is the work of God. Pharaoh's heart remained hard, and he wouldn't listen. Have you ever ignored the wise words of someone else in your life? Like, this is obvious to everybody except Pharaoh. Number four, the flies. Let my people go. You have another undeserved opportunity to do the right thing. If you won't, here's fair warning. This is what I'll do. I'll send a swarm of flies on you, but not on the Hebrews. That obviously will be a sign of who I am. Then you will know that I am Yahweh and I am present even in your land, in Egypt. I am not just a one-nation God like so many of the other ancient gods were. Well, the flies filled the palace. They filled the official houses. It says there was chaos in the land. And when there's chaos in Scripture, that is a sign of uncreation. Because at creation, the Lord took something that was formless, it had no shape, no purpose, no order, and he brought it all into order and gave it purpose. 
The flies bring chaos to the land. Pharaoh pretends to listen to God for a moment, then begs for mercy. God removes flies. It says not a single fly remained, which means things are actually better than they were probably before because I'm sure there were flies before. Undeserved mercy, and Pharaoh goes back on his promise. He reneges. He, again, was stubborn and refused to let the people go. Number five, livestock, let my people go, opportunity. If you don't, warning, this is what will happen. And it did happen. All of the livestock of the Egyptians died. None of the livestock of the Israelites died. But even so, Pharaoh's heart remained hard, and he still refused to let the Israelites go. This is five major expressions of God's power. And I wonder, have I, have you, have we ever refused to soften or surrender our hearts to God's persistent voice, his persistent message? Number six, boils. We're not going to talk about those. Mm. Number seven, (laughs) hail. Hail. In Scripture, when there is lightning, thunder, and hail, it is a sign of God's presence. There is no doubt about it. This could have been the major turning point for Pharaoh. Okay, those other five plus the boils, no, but hail and thunder and lightning that won't stop and is the worst that we've ever seen. Let my people go, opportunity. If you won't, fair warning. He even says, God even says, make sure you bring in everything from your fields and from outside, Egyptians, or they're going to be harmed. He doesn't just warn them, he tells them how to avoid the destruction of this coming plague. And then you will know, not just that I am Lord of the Hebrews and even in this land, but there is no one like me in all the earth, he says. By now, the Lord says, I could have lifted my hand and struck you and your people with a plague to wipe you off the face of the earth. But he hasn't. Hail, thunder, and lightning. Scripture says it left all of Egypt in ruins. It struck people. It struck animals. It struck plants. And then it says in what I think is such a profound sentence, even the trees were destroyed. And here is another uncreation statement because at creation, the trees are the only thing that are described as beautiful. Genesis 2.9 says, The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. If even the trees are being destroyed, we're seeing uncreation, which is being brought about because of the disobedience and stubbornness of Pharaoh. This time, it's so bad that Pharaoh says in 927, he says, this time I have sinned, (laughs) which might be the most profound understatement ever. This time I have sinned. Yahweh is righteous and my people and I, my people and I are wrong. Nice job. Deflecting. We've had enough. I'm going to let you go. And so it could feel like, finally, this is when the story is going to turn. This is when things are going to go right. And so the storm ends. Undeserved mercy is what that is. And 934 says, But when Pharaoh saw that the rain, the hail, 
and the thunder had stopped, he and his officials sinned again. And Pharaoh again became stubborn. And because his heart was hard, Pharaoh refused to let the people leave. When he saw that the storm had disappeared, he decided, yeah, I'm not going to believe or do that. Even after all of the opportunities there had been. And I wonder, have I, have you, have we ever used circumstances as an excuse to not pay attention to the Lord? To go, well, it's going to be fine. No, it's not so bad. I think that plagues one through seven are kind of a unit. A lot of people have strong ideas about this. Some people think there's three, 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 and one. Some people think they're divided into five and five. I think they're divided into seven and three, and that the seventh is the end of a major episode where things could have gone different, but they don't, and that the tenth is the end of a major episode. Now, the first seven plagues, God says, I am going to do this, Pharaoh, so that you know who I am. You started out by saying, who is Yahweh? Why should I listen to him? Now I've shown you. The next three plagues are also so that Israel is confident about who God is. In 10.2, it says, I've done all these things so that you can tell your children and your grandchildren about how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and about the signs that I displayed among them and so that you will know that I am Yahweh, the Lord. Please understand, this is not God indiscriminately saying, you know what, today I feel like making a mockery of someone. God responding to wickedness, oppression, evil, horrible, despotic behavior. So now we enter the last three. Locusts. Let my people go. He still gets another opportunity. If you don't, this is what will happen. Pharaoh doesn't let them go. This time he says, oh man, I haven't just sinned, but I've sinned against Yahweh and your people. Here's a great line. Then he says, please forgive me just this once. As though this is the only time that he needed to be forgiven. And plead with Yahweh to take away this death from me. Have I, have you, or we, have we ever expected God to continually overlook sinful behavior over and over and over because we assume that God will just keep showing us mercy and forgiveness? Do we flaunt that in his face as Pharaoh did? Well, the Lord removed the locusts because he is merciful. And then it says, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart again. And we're going to stop here for a moment and talk about this because the wording has changed. And if someone doesn't read all of scripture with very discerning, wise eyes, they could, if they wanted to, go, do you see that? God is a bitter, vengeful, petty, indiscriminately punitive God who just hurts people because he feels like it, who just makes people be evil. It says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God is making him be evil. Did God force Pharaoh to sin? 
Did he not give him chance after chance to do something different? Did he force him to rebel? Did he force him to be wicked? That does not match scripture's description of the Lord. And I think actually that Romans 1 can help us with this a lot. In Romans 1, starting in verse 18, it says, God shows his anger from heaven against sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he's made it obvious to them. Clearly, that had happened in this case. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature. So people have no excuse for not knowing God. Not, not everybody maybe gets eight plagues right in front of you to know. Pharaoh certainly had no excuse for not knowing God. They knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. Not once did Pharaoh say, thank you for removing this plague. What he said was, oh, I'm still not going to listen to you. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. And as a result, their minds became dark and confused. They claimed to be wise, but instead they became fools. And they began worshiping the glorious, instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols. So God abandoned them. If you stop there, you're in deep trouble of misinterpreting. God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things they wanted to do. God allowed them to follow their foolish ideas, their sinfulness, their wickedness. And as a result, they kept doing sinful and wicked things. That is not just a description of what happened in this story. It's a description of how the world works. God gave them up to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. Well, is that unloving? Is that unfair? Is that wicked and petty and despotic and vengeful like many people say God is? Or is this the act of a merciful and loving God who wants and invites all people to come and know him patiently over and over and over again, but who also allows people to make their own decisions and who doesn't abandon them, but allows them to abandon him? Really, I think saying God hardened Pharaoh's heart is another way of saying God did not force Pharaoh to do what he should have done. God did not force Pharaoh to do what he told him to do. God did not force Pharaoh to behave in a way that he should have done after all of God's demonstrations of awesome power and mercy. God did not force Pharaoh to unharden his heart. Instead, God allowed Pharaoh to selfishly and wickedly hang on to his hard heart. You've maybe heard people say, and I've heard people say, I don't believe there's a God because if there were a God and he was a loving God, this world would be a better place. Actually, the world would be a better place if everybody lived within the design that God had for humanity and the world. So when someone says the world would be a better place if God were loving and actually existed, really what they're saying is 
If God were real and loving, he would make sure that everyone did exactly what they're supposed to do, not what they want to do, especially the really bad people, so that my life can be pleasant and good and there's no suffering and wickedness and evil. And that person may think that that's a good idea until the moment comes where they realize that also means God is going to force them to live and act a certain way. You have to take that to its logical conclusion and then you recognize that this is a foolish argument because it would require God to force and control all people, even the person who's saying it. God did not force Pharaoh to be wicked, nor did he force him to do the right thing. The next plague, the next plague, plague that was so very linguistically accurate of me, but we're going to just go with plague like the English do, was darkness. One more chance for Pharaoh to turn. And then the last plague is quite horrific, but is in response to horrific behavior. Again, God gives a warning, though. Please hear this. God gives a warning, and Pharaoh could have turned. And he was willing, he certainly knows how powerful God is, he was willing for all the firstborn sons of Egypt to die rather than to surrender to the Lord. Think about that for a moment. For the Israelites, that night when the angel of death visited they were celebrating what became the Passover meal. And the Lord told them to take a spotless, perfect lamb and sacrifice it, which may sound barbaric to us, but it was very common in that time and that culture that sacrifices were part of worship. And that they were to eat it, a very, cooked a very specific way. They were to eat unleavened bread. And they were to take the blood of the lamb and paint it on the doorposts of their house so that when the angel of death came, he knew that God's people lived there and he would pass over that house and not inflict the plague on them. The Israelites had waited 400 years for God to redeem and rescue them from slavery in Egypt, give or take 10 years. 400 years. Do you know that between the Old and New Testaments, Israel waited about 400 years for the Messiah to come and rescue them? In our story, eventually the Israelites are freed from slavery, and they celebrate with this great song in Exodus 15, first ever worship song. It's amazing. It's beautiful. And the song starts like this. Yahweh the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation that is the first use of the word salvation in scripture. He is my strength, oz in Hebrew. He is my song, zimrath in Hebrew. He is my salvation, yeshua in Hebrew. Which, by the way, is the name of Jesus in his language. You will call his name Jesus because he will save my his people. Already here, salvation has arrived. This story, this actually whole story, points to Yeshua, 
Jesus. And we are all given undeserved opportunities, more than fair warnings and undeserved mercy to know that he is God and to follow him fully. Anyone who follows Jesus, who has surrendered to him, who has unhardened their heart to him, is washed with the blood of Christ. It is a mark. It is a sign that we are redeemed and saved. Before the first Passover, God said to the Israelites, this is what you should do, this is how, this is how you're going to eat, this is what you're going to do to make sure that you're safe, and he says then, this is a day to remember. Before his death, Jesus said to his disciples, do this to remember me. And so today, we are going to remember the redemption and the salvation that the Israelites experienced in the Exodus story, but that we experience today because of Jesus, that was pointed to way back in Exodus. So this is how we'll do this. The musicians come up. We're going to um, have people come up by two rows and take the little <laughs> IQ puzzle pods, bring it back to your seat with you. We are going to remember together. You can just take one as you go. If Jesus is your redeemer and your savior, this is a celebration for you. So when the music starts, I invite you to come up by two rows, take and come back and sit, and then I'll give us instructions after that. On the night that he was betrayed by one of his closest friends. Jesus gathered with his disciples, his followers, one last time, those who believed him and trusted in him. And though he knew that death was just hours away, he shared a meal with them. And he took bread, and he broke it, and he said to them, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take it and eat it in remembrance of me. After that, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant. It is the new promise between you and I. It is my blood which is shed for you. Drink it and remember me. And as you do that, Jace, take a moment in silence to remember and to rejoice that we are redeemed, we are saved, we are set free from sin so that we can be free in Christ. Spend a moment with the Lord.
Dear Lord, you are almighty. You are Alpha and Omega. You are awesome. We love you. We worship you. We give our hearts to you as unhardened as we can, trusting that you will continue the transformation of turning them from hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. Amen. Would you rise and receive the benediction, please? As we leave, receive these words that actually Yahweh first spoke to Moses on behalf of the people of Israel. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord smile on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord show his favor to you and give you his peace. Amen.